We are recording this episode on September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terrible, horrific, just world-changing attacks that took place on American soil. And it affected us at such a deep, deep level. It even affected us at a very psychological level. And fortunately for us, our first guest of the second season specializes in this very subject, and we're going to talk to him. Yeah. So we know that you're going to enjoy this episode, and welcome back to the Sons of History podcast. Welcome to another season, our second season of the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And boy, was that a long first season. You know, it kind of reminded me of the Second Continental Congress, which I believe lasted for about six years. Yeah? Yeah. Or well, I don't know, but it was. <laughs> it felt like that for us. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, is this season is going to go through December 4th. We know that you're going to enjoy this season. We've got guests lined up, and our first guest is Dr. Donnell Olson. But before we get to him... We've got a new segment, This Week in History. All right, so my choice for This Week in History is September 13th, 1788. And this is when New York City becomes the nation's capital under the new Constitution. And actually, it had been there since uh, January 11th, 1785. And actually, it wasn't really uh, chosen because it was it was the favorite choice. Uh, there were actually other ones out there that were that were mentioned like Philadelphia uh, and Baltimore and Lancaster but New York City was already being utilized as the capital so it was sort of you know choice by default so it stayed the capital in New York until August 12 1790 and then they decided to move it to Philadelphia in uh, December 6 1790 and it stayed there for the next 10 years while Washington DC was being built that is it for my choice. Well, you know, in 1752, we didn't have a this week. You know, in September, like 11, 12, 13, you know, that didn't exist at all. Really? Yeah. I'll explain. The new calendar, you know, we used to have the Julian calendar, and then we moved to uh, the Gregorian calendar when the Catholic Pope Gregory the Thirteenth decided, hey, you know what? Uh, this is about 70 years, 70 or 80 years prior to that. He was like, you know what? We're going to use a new calendar named after me, Gregorian calendar. And the Protestant countries were like, we're not going to follow the Catholics. So they stuck with the Julian calendar. Well, finally in 1752, under King George II, Britain decides that they are going to follow the Gregorian calendar. So on Wednesday, September the 2nd, 1752, it was followed by Thursday, September the 14th, 1752. So there were 11 days missing. And boy, the uh, the British people, they were pissed. I want my days back. I know. They're, they're like, you know, uh, you know, rent is coming up. Now it's going to be 11 days sooner. No, I don't think so, you know. And yeah, it uh, didn't didn't work out too well. But, you know, you know that we've stuck with it. And but yeah, so in 1752, this week did not exist. There was no September 11th, not in Britain at least. All right, so there is your This Week in History. 
All right, so without further ado, we've got a very special guest on the show. We know that you're going to love this conversation. It is Dr. Donnell Olson. He has a new book that is coming out actually a few days after the release of this show. Um, his book is called 9-11 Gothic Decrypting Ghosts and Trauma in New York City's Terrorism Novels. All right, so we've got Dr. Donnell Olson on the line. How you doing, man? Good, good. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you. You ready for this conversation, Dr. Kevorkian? <sighs> I'm ready for it, Dr. Frankenstein. There we go. Oh, Look at the way he's dressed. He's better dressed than us. I know. You know, well, I mean... <laughs> he's a man who's prepared. He's a professor, too, I'm uh, assuming there. <laughs> and a professional. So, hey, Donnell, um, I can call you Donnell because you and I are old friends. I, I want to just a short glimpse into our relationship. I started off as a student of yours and this was, uh, well, around the 9-11 moment, uh, 2000, 2001. I uh, had you as my English professor, and you and I have become great friends. It's a wild story. It was an apparition in Barnes & Noble that caught my peripheral, and I was like, I haven't seen this man in I don't know how long, but I'm pretty sure that was Danelle Olson. And I ran out of Barnes & Noble, and like I, I, I didn't grab you. <laughs> hey, are you Danelle Olson? But I was kinda like, like, hey. Kind of like what I did to Dinesh D'Souza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, 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 man. Banging on his window. Yeah. Um, and he was like, I was like, hey, are you, uh, you're, you're Dr. or you're Danelle Olson, right? And that's how it all got started, man. We just kept running into each other. So wild story, blast from the past. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. It was meant to be our meeting. I think so. So we want to talk to you about your new book, um, 9-11 Gothic. And, you know, first question is, the focal point is 9-11. This was, and, and tell us how you got started on this book and why 9-11 as the focal point. I like this question because it really takes us to the essence of everything. I can remember as you can, the morning of 9-11 vividly, I was at a hotel in the Woodlands with my kids having breakfast. We were watching TV and the reporters had already rushed to the World Trade Center and they were talking about the first plane that came in. And as we were watching that, live footage, the second plane comes in to the next tower. And I was with my my little ones, uh, and one was three years old, one was one year old, two little girls. They were watching the TV. I was, we were, we could not eat anymore. And the reporter, it, it dawned on the reporter that this was no accident. This was an orchestrated attack on America. And as we were watching, I remember a woman going by us and she was just in tears and she was speaking Arabic. Um, she was so wounded by what she was seeing on TV. As, that, as the moments went by, my kids were wondering what was going on. They were so young, but they could tell that the room uh, was full of tears. They'd never seen it a whole room of adults react in shock and um, be crying. And they asked me, Daddy, 
my oldest asked me, what happened? What's wrong? And I just couldn't explain anything. I was in such shock. I was so numb. I couldn't say anything. And that morning, I took the kids to the mall next door, Woodlands Mall. We went to the, the um, uh, carousel with the horses, put my kids on there. Almost no one in the mall. No one on that carousel, just myself, my kids, and the lonely attendant. And it struck me that day that this was probably the one time in my life where I could not explain anything to my children at all. I had no words for it. And it haunted me, that whole experience. And I think my interest in this as a book is not just an academic matter, because 9-11 of course, is searing. It's wounding for all of us. Just talking about this is a very serious uh, episode because we're still in mourning about it. We're still thinking about 3,000 people ruthlessly killed one morning. And I think the trauma of it haunted me. And that's why I wanted to do something with it in the form of some kind of book or give perhaps in a way when my kids were older, some kind of answers to the questions they were asking about. And in fact, when an opportunity came to, to uh, finish a PhD through my great uh, college, Lone Star College, uh, directed by the chancellor, Steve Head, when an opportunity came for us to study, I took that opportunity. The college was wonderful in helping to fund it and give me some time off, give me a sabbatical. Uh, and the university I worked with, the Scottish University, um, were, they were wonderful by giving me a, a scholarship from the government of Scotland and also from the university itself to carry out my research. And so it was finally a topic big enough that I cared enough about to devote years and years of my life to. And I started this dissertation uh, in 2013, and I finished in 2017. And this book that's coming out this month, 9-11 Gothic, has about half the dissertation in it. Another book coming out next year from a different press will have the other half. What I'm really looking at in the book that's coming out this month from uh, the same press that did my other book uh, about 10 years ago, this is an imprint from Robin and Littlefield, who, who did this book, 21st Century Gothic, and also the 9-11 Gothic book. Uh, the 9-11 Gothic book is very much interested in New Yorkers' reaction to 9-11 and the trauma that they go through and how they are visited by the dead. And what does that mean? Especially in books that otherwise are very realistic. They're not ghost stories. What's the meaning of a ghost in a book that's not a ghost story? That's the question of my dissertation. But the other question I'm interested in is this. One book, 9-11 Gothic, covers uh, civilians in New York at the time of this catastrophe. My next book, um, Gothic War on Terror, covers uh, law enforcement and military connected with Afghanistan in Iraq and strange things that they're seeing, paranormal things that they're seeing as they carry out their duties. 
So one book deals with 9-11, but then the other book will cover the 20 years uh, since in those, those countries we went into. So the short answer is, like a lot of academics, we're attracted to things we cannot explain. If it was easy, we wouldn't care about it. But because it's difficult and murky and painful and layered and changing, and our understanding of it's always changing, new facts are coming out, things are being released that we didn't know before, it attracts us. It is the pull of the unknown, uh, the enigmatic, the difficult, the gnarly, and the inexplicable. To me, in some ways, 9-11 is still very hard to explain. How could people in such a cold-blooded way decide we're going to kill as many people, and it ended up being people from 88 nations, as we can? Uh, what kind of thinking is that? And a postscript to that that made me also interested in, in writing this book is when I was a bit younger in college, I was a student in the Middle East. And one of the places I studied in was Cairo. At the American University in Cairo, I was studying Islam. And that same semester, there was another student there from Egypt who was studying English at that same university. It's a very small university in Cairo, beautiful American University in Cairo. His father really insisted that this engineering son of his needed to know some English. And I, I never formally met him. Do you know who this is? <laughs> I can see the light, the light in your eye. I never met him formally, but we might have walked by each other. We might have sat in, in, uh, in the same area to have tea because he was there that exact same semester. And that, that man, that infamous man, that ringleader of terror was... Muhammad Atta. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, even the dog's getting in on it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> And my dog barks when he hears that name. <laughs> He's ready to, to go crazy. To Did you see him or you just, I mean, it was like, okay, y'all passed by and you never knew who he was, that type of thing. But you don't remember ever seeing him or anything like that. No, no. I mean, I remember seeing students, uh, you know, the Egyptian students and then some foreign students like myself, of course, from being there. But uh, it was not a place that you expect somebody with fundamentalist leanings to be. It was one of the more progressive universities in all of Cairo, had a huge American influence. Uh, a lot of people studied politics there, history there. A lot of professors were American, or at least were, ed were Egyptians that had been educated in America and come back to Egypt. It was an amazing place. It was a place where people with money studied. You, not everybody could go there. And I remember, one thing I do remember is a lot of American design. Uh, American clothes, they had the latest, all of that stuff. So Muhammad Atta would have been um, a strange figure there. I mean, this would not be a good, <laughs> this would not be a place that we, as we understand him, that he would fit in in any way. Or it would intensify his, maybe his anti-Americanism. So all of those strange things that happen in a life, have a magnetic pull for us. We want to get closer to this thing. And the third reason I had to, had to work on this is that to me, this tragedy is like, uh, if, if I lived in another time and I lived during the sinking of the Lusitania or I lived during Pearl Harbor, 
an event like that would have the same pull for me. It would be the event that changed years and years afterward. And maybe many of us on some level sensed that with 9-11. You, you didn't know what would happen, but you knew a reaction from a superpower is great when it is attacked. The world would be different. Somehow you knew that. And also you worried, what's next? You know, nuclear reactor is going to be attacked, attacked. There was that sense that a vulnerability we hadn't experienced in our lifetime ever. So all of those things together drew me in. And they gave me the staying power to, to finish a dissertation, develop it into a book, develop it into another book. Uh, and it's, it's a great topic because I never stopped thinking about it. You know, it always, it always pulls at me. Some things you get bored with, but this never bored me. You know, so you... So you have a second book coming out and it's interesting because some of our questions are going to sort of relay to that second book, which is good because uh, to an extent you've already written it because it's part of your dissertation. Um, but in this first book, you cover uh, five different novels or you use uh, five different novels for your inspiration. But I want to move into this question of speaking of trauma, you're decrypting trauma um, through these terrorism novels. Um Many people associate trauma with bad dreams or anxiety, but your book goes to a deeper level psychologically and spiritually. Uh, so at what varying levels has the 9-11 trauma affected people? Uh, trauma literally comes from a Greek word, which means a wound that will not heal. And in the 1990s, especially in America, there became a great interest in looking at trauma patients, patients who had been in a, let's say, a, a, a fiery building, patients who had been sexually abused, patients who had been shot or tortured in any kind of ways. And the question became, how well can people uh, remember what happened to them? Or are there blank spaces in their memory? Can they not articulate what happened to them? And the idea goes, if you cannot tell us what happened, how can you start moving to healing? How can we clean the wound if we can't open it up and, and look at it? So in the 1990s, there became a huge interest in this topic, and it developed into something called trauma theory. And you had different intellectuals from different fields, including literary studies, but also from neuroscience, giving their different positions on how we respond to overwhelming pain. So that world started being, that theory started being applied to literature and why there are certain gaps in literature, why things are left out in a novel. And my dissertation turns that on its head. And I argue against trauma theory. If you want to get ahead with a book, sometimes you have to go against the grain. I argued, no, they are telling us what happened. But they're telling us in a cryptid language that we have to decrypt somehow. And my argument was, these people are recalling the experience, what they saw, what they felt, what they underwent, but they're doing it in a kind of dream language, a language that's right out of a Gothic novel. And they're doing it by talking about spirits and demons and um, things coming back from the dead, all these things we connect with uh, the supernatural world. 
So that was my way of turning a theory on its head. The theory said, people can't explain what happened. That's what trauma is. They blank out. And my theory was, I think in these books, they are telling us what happened. They're telling us more, but it's through a kind of strange language that has to be uh, translated. And so my book tries to translate what's going on. I'm assuming that there are some people in real life who have experienced the things that you, that you are talking about. So why, why concentrate on fiction writers or fictional characters or fiction in general as opposed to real-life people who I'm sure have uh, witnessed these things? That's such a great point. Um, in my book, I talk about some accounts from firefighters and police officers at the scene who had paranormal experiences. There are, there are some really strange books. They didn't get a lot of uh, traction with the reading public. You know, they're not bestseller books, but I still found them authentically weird because they're, these are live witnesses to strange things that they would see, let's say in uh, the Fresh Kills dump where a lot of 9-11 uh, material, including some human remains that just got mixed up with building material, it would get hauled out there to the Fresh Kills dump, major dump for New York area. And people working there saw strange things, uh, ghosts and so on. And so in my book, I, I mention some of these real life accounts. They're fascinating, they're troubling. Uh, however, the problem with nonfiction or, or the limit of nonfiction, I teach it, so I like it a lot. But one of the limits is the problem of limited interiority. In other words, that nonfiction book can get into one character's mind really well, namely the, the writer. <laughs> You'll learn everything that person experienced and what that person thought of. But fiction is the art of getting into often several characters' minds. Um, it's very interested in those interior spaces. And these kinds of writers have a super subtle sensitivity and ability to, to do that, right? So I got very interested in how are people processing trauma? And sometimes we can see how they're processing it by physical actions, but I'm, I'm more interested, or I think it goes deeper if you can actually be told what are they thinking about or what are they you know, remembering? And that also gave me a chance to look at how memory works. I, I was very fascinated by memory in these books. And I think that the fiction writers are in sync with a lot of what neuroscientists say about memory and that it's very disassociative. It's not very linear. We tend to remember little pieces about some experience, but not the whole from start to finish very well. You remember what someone was wearing or maybe a couple words that person said, they stand out vividly. And then maybe in the later in the day, you remember some other patch or piece for whatever reason that stuck with you. And I thought these novels were able to replicate how people actually remember things. It's a great question. Why nonfiction versus fiction? And mostly I, was in, I thought the power of fiction to shine a light on how minds process things, several minds in one book was greater. They would spend more time at that. Interesting. Well, you, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you, you've written the civilian version of the events of 9-11 and now you're 
you have written or you're about to write? I'm in the middle of writing the one that deals with people who are trained, military and law enforcement, who are trained to um, defend a base, who are trained to go on attack, who uh, are trained to protect civilians. And so they have all this special background and, and how to handle trauma or extreme situations. And so that's the one I'm halfway done with. I have about 25,000 words and that book should be about 70,000 words. And the plan is for it, the publishers agreed to it, another publisher, and it's supposed to come out in 2022. And that's called The Gothic War on Terror. And so it's specializing on novels, films, and also uh, graphic novels, comic series that take place in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq. And there's one, the one that's finished, that takes place actually in, uh, on 9-11, but it's through the eyes of a policeman who's, who's at the towers. So I count him as law enforcement trained to handle chaotic situation not maybe two towers that are both half a mile tall falling down. I mean, I, that's beyond his, his usual training, but he is trained to handle crowd control uh, and he's trained to look at death. And so I got interested in having a companion volume. And often in writing, you find that if a publisher is willing to do one book, maybe another pub, the same publisher or another one wants to continue the vein in some way, because you found a readership already, so why not go a little farther? And the fact is, the books that I cover in 9-11 Gothic are earlier, they're closer to 9-11. They start from 2005, and it ends, the last one is 2012. But with Gothic War on Terror, they come closer to 2020. So I was interested in being able to talk about different time periods. And many of the authors in Gothic 9-11, they are recording notes right after 9-11. And then the book doesn't get published for four years later or, or even more. But with the uh, Gothic War on Terror book, these are writers who might be military, ex-military people themselves or ex-law enforcement. And, or they were journalists covering the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so they're farther away from time from 9-11. And they're mostly looking at these, uh, these wars in far off countries and, and what's going on. Why soldiers are seeing certain things and how soldiers respond to trauma. Even people trained to handle uh, very difficult situations. They got the best training in the world. Uh, what happens when things get really weird? And so those books deal with a lot of topics that are sensitive, extraordinary rendition, taking terror suspects to countries we have a special relationship with and uh, using enhanced interrogation or torture to get something out of that suspect. And that something's often just whatever the interrogator wants to hear at a certain point. Uh, what happens when a suspect is killed in the midst of interrogation or torture? Uh, and what happens when the torturer sees that suspect again, but knows that suspect is dead? 
I got interested in those books where someone is haunted by, by the grave. Uh, are they dealing with guilt, blame, shame? Uh, what's going on? And the transition of soldiers to come back to stateside among people who don't understand what they went through, that was really fascinating for me. You know, as a child who grew up during coverage of the Vietnam War constantly on TV, and who remembers soldiers coming back from the war, not being accepted by, by us. I guess it's just a kind of thorn in my heart. How is it for military to come back to a world that either can't understand them uh, or doesn't care to understand them? And so maybe this book tries to do that. And again, it's about trauma. How are soldiers handling, and law enforcement that are stationed abroad handling things that most of us hopefully will never see but they did. And we, we saw some of those things in the closing hours of American presence in Afghanistan. I mean, how, how do you deal with some of the things that you saw there? People running to the airport, desperate to get on those last planes out of Afghanistan because they see what's coming, you know, and it's just nothing good. And lots of people got left behind. And you saw those images of children, little babies being taken over that wall on the other side uh, to those airplanes and some better life. How would that haunt you if you were, it's haunting to watch, right, from home. But if you were there as a soldier, or if you were near where people uh, were blown up in those last few days of evacuation where we lost troops, uh, people who are 20 years old, 21 years old, who barely lived and, and um, faced their end in that far off place. I'm hunted by all of that, right? And I know we've almost gone on to the next news, news cycle. We're on to something else in America. But to me, I can't forget it. And that kind of uh, experience would leave an unhealed wound, I think, in many soldiers. They either would try not to talk about it, or they'd spend many years in therapy trying to deal with it. So that's what I'm interested in. And how they might use a language that is the language of the monstrous and the ghostly to express what they went through. Well, I was going to say this, this, you know, you kind of answered the question that I was going to ask you in regards to, you know, why did you choose the, uh, the civilians who were attacked in 9-11 versus, say, yeah. the soldiers who fought in the War of Terror? Because, you know, I can, I can relate an experience that I went through which was uh, about five years ago, I was in a mass shooting myself. And um, I, I, I was hurt, came out of it okay, and the following month, I was at the air show at Ellington Field, and there's a tent where a bunch of the old-timers who fought in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and even the War on Terror, like our friend Dan Flores. And... Um, when you know, I, 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 there was a lot of TV coverage on me, and when I went in, when I walked into that tent, men who I had read about, men who I, you know, like uh, Dick Cole was there, um, the last surviving Doolittle Raider, um, again Dan Flores, uh, Joe McPhail, who was a death rattler who shot down two Japanese planes, they came to me to salute me which to me was the proudest moment I think I've ever felt in my life, but I felt it was undeserved. And I asked them, why are y'all coming and treating me like a celebrity? You guys faced it every day. You faced combat. You faced horrors. 
you face things that, you know, I only witnessed for maybe one minute. And they said to me, well, you're a civilian. We were military. We were expecting to be attacked. We were expecting to get hit. We expected these things to happen to us. You as a civilian did not. You had no training whatsoever. And so, you know, that was the question I was going to ask you is, is that um, the civilians on 9-11, I'm assuming you've decided to talk about them because they didn't get any type of training to expect the horror uh, or the trauma of war or combat or violence, whereas the soldiers did. So um, I'm I think you're getting you're getting both worlds with yeah. with this work, which is fantastic. And I, I think what is good about um, this work that you've put together and what you're going to finish next year is the idea of decrypting the trauma and to an extent, possibly maybe bringing some type of healing for an unhealable wound or what we consider to be an unhealable wound. I think that that's one of the, from my perspective, it's the most important aspect of your book is to possibly give people some answers about the trauma and the, the trauma that they experience and the, and the, the issues, psychological, spiritual, and, and otherwise, that they still deal with now 20 years later. But there's going to be a difference, I would think. And, yeah, he, there and you're going to be, be better to answer this one. There's a difference in the trauma from a civilian versus yeah. someone who's in the military. Have you, have you seen that uh, so far based on the research and what you've been, what you've been writing about? It's such a great reflection. This, this has me thinking about all kinds of ideas. And your question is asking um, uh, how, do, how do military versus civilians process it differently? Was that? Uh, that, that, is, that is because the, the civilians, civilians are not trained for that. Right. And they saw, they, they're looking at people jumping from the towers or someone who was, say, in the tower itself and then seeing the things and the horror and, and running and seeing the, the building collapsing versus I'm sure you have noticed a difference based on who you're talking to, that, you know, the civilians are not prepared for that, whereas the military men are. So how, do they, how are they processing it? I mean, what, what, what's your take on all that? I think the irony with some of the military and law enforcement books that I'm looking at for Gothic 9-11, for the new book by Springer, is that uh, there are people who are trained to handle <clears throat> extreme stress but the stress that they're facing is compounded because they have to carry out things that the, the civilian population and the 9-11 novels never had to carry out. And a lot of it is uh, dealing with terror suspects and trying to get them to confess to something or searching for terrorists and killing the wrong people. We thought we had good information what we were told was not good information. It was told to us by someone to resolve a vendetta against an, another tribe or another family. We were used. We were used to kill somebody that our informant wanted dead. Can you imagine the guilt that would come from that? So that's what I'm finding. That the soldiers who are trained and the, the anti-terror squads who are trained aren't trained to deal with the the horror of mistakes when force goes too far or when force is applied to the wrong people. 
the, the terrible shadow or ambiguities of war, the fog of war is what, what um, leads them to such great suffering. So with 9-11, with 9-11 novels, the civilians didn't do anything. They were just there, right? They were victims. With the, the war accounts, uh, sometimes the soldiers are pulled into doing something against someone who might have been innocent. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine being uh, working at Abu Ghraib, for instance, being a soldier at Abu Ghraib? What might you have done? Or what might you have seen? Or what, might, what moments were there where you should have reported something, but you did not? And people died because of it. It would haunt you for the rest of your days, right? Absolutely. So, Danelle, that is, um, man, that it, it is a fascinating insight into 9-11 in a, and in a way that I don't think a lot of people really consider. Um, and so we, one, one, we want to thank you for the work that you've put in on something so important. And so I, I guess to an extent, it, I mean, it's, it's a modern moment. It's like, this is not your world war two. This is not your Korean war. You know, this is our, our modern crisis that we still are dealing with. Um, and so speaking of, uh, you know, this, this book, when is it coming out? Now, it, it's almost out. When is it coming out and how can people purchase it? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, 9-11 Gothic is scheduled to come out the 15th of this month. I was hoping it would come out today, but the 15th of this month. And uh, Lexington Books, which is run by Roman and um, Littlefield, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, has it up at their site. I can send you a link to it. It's also at Amazon for pre-order ebook or hardbound edition. So that's when it comes out uh, this month in a, couple, a few days, four days. And uh, I just wanted to let your readers know a couple things. This, this book and this, this whole discussion, it kind of reminds me of something. People were saying that the fall of Afghanistan reminded them, some soldiers, of the fall of Saigon, the fall of Kabul, like the fall of Saigon, or even worse in some ways. And I wanted to connect with that because I think that the books I, I, I cover, and especially the ones coming up for the next volume, Gothic War on Terror, has that sense that the Vietnam War must have had for soldiers. Who is our enemy? It's very hard to tell who is our friend and our enemy. Uh, and in Afghanistan, in Iraq, soldier, our soldiers had to face some of those same problems, the terrible ambiguity of not knowing who's your friend and who's your foe. The other thing I want to leave your, your viewers with is that uh, I went back to my PhD program in my late 40s, finished at age 50. So, and 9-11 and gave me something to talk about. So, my point is never think that you're done. If you want to go back to something, you can go back to it and you can get scholarships for it. You can get support as I did from my wonderful Lone Star College through Dr. Steve Head, our chancellor and fellow faculty and my chairman and support from the Scottish University. And the reality is, for instance, for you gentlemen, you are in the prime of your academic lives. 
I mean, the older you get, the better. You're like seasoned beef or, or whiskey, as the Scots would say. In other words, the older we get, the better, because we have more interesting things to say. We have a lifetime of reading to tap. And the students who are non-traditional in a class are often the ones the professor just embraces, loves having in that class. So never think that, oh, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I guess my career is done in academia or whatever my fascination is. No, it'll be better than ever, right? And the last thing I want to leave you with and your guests is just a congratulations on all of your episodes and an appreciation from me for having this show that opens our eyes to history, uh, keeps letting us know that history is a kind of dialogue and that we should bring in panelists from all kinds of different political positions like you gentlemen do. I think it's wonderful and it's what really uh, any understanding of history really needs is what you you gentlemen embody. So thanks so much for having your show and these wonderful topics. It's great work. Well, thank you. We're, we are very honored to have you on our show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Danelle. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we aim to please. So that's for sure. Yeah. And it was a, it, it was, it was just, it was so great having you on the show. It, and it's every time you and I get together, well, you know how it is. I mean, it, it is a long, thorough, fun, enjoyable conversation just like this was. So thank you again for being on and thank you for the work that you're doing. I appreciate it. Take care, gentlemen. And thanks to your viewers, too. You got it. Thank you. All right. We want to thank Dr. Danielle Olson for joining the show again. Um, I tell you, old friend of mine, former professor, and now I like to think that he's a, a friend of yours as well. I mean, we talked about Offset. Hey, let's go get some beers uh, and have another long, thorough conversation because we were talking for a while once we got off. Yeah, we were. I, you know, I think a beer summit is in order. And, and I really did enjoy talking to him. I, I, I know uh, I've met him once before, but I don't think he and I had this type of a conversation. But, but I really did enjoy talking to him. He's brilliant man and uh, you know he he actually wanted to hear what we had to say about you know some of these subjects so yeah. it was good to just kind of have a back and forth where you know we weren't waiting for the other to you know waiting our turn to uh, give our opinions we were actually listening to each other and and learning from each other. Yeah, so. it's very different than like when you and I are talking to each other. We just like, I can't wait for you to shut up so I can say something. And then I, I like to think you know, that you I think I the same way about talking me. Because you've been yeah, babbling you know, for too I, long. Uh, uh, well, okay. All right. All right. Let's do our book and movie recommendation, shall we? Let us. Do you have anything? I do. I All do. Right. <laughs> All right. This book. I found this on Amazon. It's called Founding, Fa or actually, it's called Documents of Revolution uh, by our founding fathers. Now, everybody—well, not everybody—but everybody's heard of the Federalist Papers. Not everybody's read the Federalist Papers. But did you know that there was something called the Anti-Federalist Papers? Because there were a lot of guys, founding fathers like Patrick Henry, um, Richard George Henry Mason, Lee. Right? Richard Henry Lee was the guy who introduced the um, Declaration the of Independence. Declaration of Independence. Um, and even Samuel Adams, who he didn't write any of the federal anti-federalist papers, but but they wrote a collection of works that were called the anti-federalist papers, and you don't really see that much about them. Well, this book, Documents of Revolution, not only covers the federalist papers, it covers the complete anti-federalist papers, uh, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution, Bill of Rights, and Common Sense. So, you know, the 
you know, the Anti-Federalists were not anti-American. They just were very leery about giving the federal government, which back then was called the general government, they were a little leery about giving the general government all this power and relinquishing it from the state. So many of the things that they predicted have come to pass. Yeah. So if you get this chance, get this Documents of Revolution. Now, movies. Hey, get out of here. Go on. You know, this dog is nuts. I know, I know. You know, if it was my dog, he'd be, Go mar- on. He'd be marching like, uh, like the Von Trapp children. Yeah? Yeah. I'd like to see that. All right. Yeah, speaking of Von Trapp, Sound of Music is your uh, movie recommendation? No, no. Actually, because this is September the 11th, um, I would like to recommend people... There there are a couple of movies that came out about 9-11. Now, I have not seen the the, the movie World World Trades. I have not seen that. Cage. Huh? Nick Cage. I, yeah, Nicholas Cage. Newbies! Okay. I don't remember that one, but uh, I haven't seen that one. But I did see uh, A&E had Flight 93, which pretty much was exclu- almost exclusively on the United Flight 93. Now, there was another movie called United 93 that came out in the movie theaters. And this one didn't exclusively um, show the people on United 93, it, it actually did show some of the other parts of uh, September the 11th, all the events that took place. So um, I, I would say watch Flight 93 first and then watch uh, United 93 afterwards if you, if you get the chance. And I also want to touch on 13 Hours because today's also the uh, ninth anniversary of the uh, Benghazi attack. So mm-hmm. we don't want to forget what happened then. You know, that attack happened because it was the anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Wild stuff. All right, so I got a book and movie recommendation. My book recommendation is actually, um, it's Michael Crichton. And it this was the, the first Michael Crichton novel that I read, Congo. I, I'll be honest with you. Um, it was an enjoyable read. It was fun to read, but uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that great. I'll just be honest with you. Um, it wasn't that great. I, it was an easy read. Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, if you have any Michael Crichton novel um, suggestions, feel free to send those over. Uh, much appreciated. All right. So my movie recommendation is The Train with uh, Burt Lancaster. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, I saw a little bit of it. I saw it had one of the longest continuous scenes where he jumped off a train, I think beat up somebody mm-hmm. and then jumped back on the train. I don't yeah, know. it was. it's actually a really good movie. I actually watched it on, on YouTube. You know, they got movies on there with ads. So Burt Lancaster and Paul Schofield, uh, and it's about the French resistance aspect of World War II. Uh, it was made in 1964. Really good movie. Thoroughly enjoyed. And it's Burt Lancaster. Uh, you, really, you really can't go wrong. No, you can't. So. Good actor. Right. Well, it was. Yeah, he was. God bless him. You know, I didn't know that it was Burt Lancaster and Field of Dreams until here recently. I had I no idea. I didn't know who was He's the that. doctor who's like, you know, I better go before my wife thinks I get a girlfriend. So it was that guy. Mm. Yeah. Isn't okay. that wild? Yeah. Well, I saw him in a movie about the Zulu Wars. Mm-hmm. But that was, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Hey, man, thanks for uh, coming in. Second season. One, totally prepared. And two, looking your best. Yeah, thanks. You like this shirt? It's uh... The shirt? Is I could I could live without the shirt, but I can't live without that haircut because that is on point. Whoever did it, fantastic hey, job! You really like it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, you can thank my friend Sharon Leal of Sharon Leal Salon. Now, Sharon, uh, is she the same one that helped us out with spreading 
the news about what we do at a local event? The very Dan one. Crenshaw, I Dan think, Crenshaw. Right? Yep, yep. She's right. the, she's yeah. the one. So well, thank you, you very know. much, Sharon. Yeah, thank you, Sharon. Thank you for helping spread the word and too. Hoping this guy look his best. All right. Well, we're about to end. Anything else you want to add? Uh, I went and got the jab. The COVID jab? I didn't think you were going to... Didn't you already have COVID? Well, no, no. Not that one. The uh, shingles. The shingles jab. I got oh. I got the shingles jab. Because, you know... I had chicken pox once when I was 30, so it's pretty bad. So Well, at um, least that, that vaccine works, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it doesn't use the mRNA technology. It, it's the old-fashioned method of putting in a dead or dying virus in you so your body will know what it is and attack it. And then uh, 93% effective and lasts forever, unlike uh, other uh, mRNA jabs, <laughs> which only last for about six months. Uh, Before you need to get another jab. Yeah, and boosters. Yeah. Get your boosters. Meanwhile, you need to wear a mask. Well, you know, Double which the, mask. Which is the good thing. I don't, you know, not only do I have to wear the mask, but now I can have unprotected sex with uh, with girls who have uh, the shingles, and I'm not gonna, you know, catch it. What? I don't, what do you mean? Well, I'm, I can't I'm even. No, I can't even justify that with a response. That makes absolutely zero I'm, sense. I'm vaccinated now. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Well, whatever. you'll also you may not catch sing- shingles, but you'll you'll definitely catch singles. Because you'll have all kinds of other disease. <laughs> I didn't think about that. No, did you didn't. I didn't. All right, let's all right. bring this show to an end. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find us on thesonsofhistory.com. Check out our blog page if you want to keep up with all that we're doing. Where are some of the social media outlets that people can find us? Well, they can find us on, uh, well, you mentioned uh, our, our website, but we also, we're on YouTube. Uh, subscribe. And you'll get you'll get those messages when you go to YouTube. Uh, we're also we're on Facebook and we are on Instagram. That's so right. you can watch any of our videos anytime you want. It's all good. It's and all you know, good. and you've posted quite a few uh, articles. Uh, I think your latest one was a comparison of December seventh and uh, yeah. I don't think it's actually. I don't think it got published uh, because it just didn't meet the deadline. Mm-hmm. And so we published that one on thesonsofhistory.com. So you can check that out. I did a comparison uh, between December seventh, nineteen forty one, and September eleventh, two thousand one. So I hope you go and check that out and give it a read. And hope you enjoy it. And please, always let us know what you think. Uh, let us know what you think about the show. And I tell you what, I'm really looking forward to the rest of this season. We've got some really great guests coming up. Yes, we do. And we yeah. anticipate getting a few more, too. So yeah. uh, looking yeah. forward to that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed the show. We will talk to you next week. 